Dear friends in Jesus Christ, our current series is the Holy Week Journey. So I hope you're all reading it, finding it to be beneficial. As we gather like this, we are expanding on what is in the Holy Week Journey booklet. We have traveled through Sunday and Monday of Holy Week. We are now in the process of working through the 17 events that are recorded in the Gospel according to Mark that took place on Holy Tuesday. We've covered these already. On Tuesday morning, Jesus taught his disciples about prayer and then had his authority questioned. He told the parable of the tenants and he said we should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Today, as we return to Tuesday, the topics include the resurrection, the great commandment, and David's relationship to the Christ. I'm so glad you're here so that I can share with you some of the things that I have learned about these important topics that we're going to deal with today. First of all, we go to day nine in the booklet. The Sadducees ask about the resurrection. So before we get into the section here, let's answer the question, who were the Sadducees? So the Sadducees, they restricted their belief in the Bible to the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes we call those books the Pentateuch or the Torah. So they believed in those, but not in the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. Even more important here, in a way, they denied eternal things, such as they said, there is no eternal soul, there is no resurrection of the body, and there are no angels. So they were coming from a pretty unusual perspective. That would be the Sadducees. Uh, in this reading, here in Mark chapter 12, the Sadducees approached Jesus with what they thought was an unresolvable problem for anyone who believed in the resurrection. Keep in mind, you now over and over, people are coming to Jesus, trying to stump him, trying to trap him, and that's what the Sadducees are doing here. Keep in mind, they believe there is no resurrection, so they're gonna present to him a dilemma that they don't think he can solve. Let's see what happens now as we get into the text, picking up in Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leave behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. So that's what the Bible says, and then they continue now what they're proposing to Jesus. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second brother married her and died leaving behind no children. And then the third brother, and likewise, finally, all seven had married her, and yet they left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be for all seven had married her? Quite a dilemma, isn't it? 
Kind of an unusual practice, but the Old Testament does state that was the proper practice. So they're saying, hey, what if this happened? What if there were seven brothers? What if they were all married to her? Now what's going to happen in the resurrection? Now keep in mind, they didn't believe in the resurrection, but they're trying to show Jesus like the foolishness of believing in the resurrection. They're trying to trap him here. So what happened? Well, how did Jesus resolve this dilemma? We have it right here in verses 24 and 25. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when the seven brothers rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now we have to be careful here. We live in a world today where so many people believe that when you die, you become an angel, and that is not true. It doesn't matter what movie you watched or whoever said it, it is not true. We always go with the Bible, not with popular opinion. So nobody, no human being becomes an angel that's not what Jesus said here, but he said the people will be like the angels. What does that mean? Angels do not marry, and people, when they are with God forever, they will be like the angels in that they will not marry. Okay? That's what he's talking about here. But then, though, Right after that, Jesus says something that is so super awesome. Like if this was the only thing I was preaching on today, this would make it worth it, I think. This is so important that we grasp this. So he went on in 26 then, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then he concluded by saying to them, you are greatly mistaken. That's what he told these Sadducees. You are greatly mistaken. You don't get it. You're not paying attention to the scriptures. You're putting your own spin on things, and you guys are wrong. That's what he told them. Let's think about this a little bit more to make sure we understand what Jesus just said. So first of all here, let's think about the time difference. So the time between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... And then jumping to the time of Moses, we're talking about 500 years in between, approximately. In other words, when the Lord spoke to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for about 500 years. So that's important to get that point. Let's go on to the amazing reality here then. So even though the bodies of those men are dead, those men are alive. That is what Jesus was saying. How are they alive? We could say, well, wait a minute. I'll take you to where their graves are. They're not alive. They're dead. But let's understand, though, those men are alive because God is their God, and God is the God of 
the living. So what am I trying to say here? Let me give you what I'm calling a practical implication example. When I think about the body of my mother's mother, that would be my grandmother on my mother's side, she died back in 1983. So she died 41 years ago. Where is she now? She died in Christ. Is she dead or is she alive? Well, her body is dead, but she, who she really is, she is alive with God. She is alive with God, and when Christ comes, her body will be resurrected, and her body and soul will be put back together. What is that telling us? When we have a loved one who dies in Christ, well, sure, we can have some sorrow, but that's not a reason for much sorrow. The only sorrow would be we can't communicate with that person any longer, but we should not be feeling sorry for that person. That person is now alive with God. That's what Jesus is telling us here. If we're feeling sorry, if we're mourning, we're probably mourning for ourselves over the loss that we're feeling, not over the person who has died in Christ. God wants us to be confident that though that person is dead, though we saw that dead person's body, that is the tent of that person. That is not the real person. That person is alive with God. That should make all the difference when we think about our loved ones dying in Christ. I hope you're, you got there what I was trying to communicate. Let's go on to day number 10 here now. We come to the great commandment. We are going to talk about the scribes here. So I want to mention the scribes here real briefly. So regarding the scribes, who were the scribes? We could say that they were specialists in mosaic legal matters. In other words, they were kind of like biblical attorneys, if you will. That, that sounds bad, doesn't it? A biblical attorney. But they understood the scriptures and they were dealing in legal matters that had to do with the scriptures. So thinking about who they were from that perspective, let's get right into the text now as we pick up in chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. Now, before I go any further here, you can't pick it up unless I say it, and it still won't have that much impact. But keep in mind, though, this is the fifth event in a row where people have come and challenged Jesus. So it was back to back to back to back. I mean, it was just a wave of all these different challenges kept coming to him. And with every one of them, he handles them like in such a beautiful way. Do you remember when he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? Even the people who were trying to trap him, they were amazed at what he said. They're like, we got him. If he answers this way, we got him. If he says this, we got him. He gave such a beautiful answer, they never thought about that possibility, and even they were amazed. Well, Jesus just does that over and over again, and now we have another challenge here. So again, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? 
Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus continued, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, there is no other commandment greater than these. Going to verse 32 then, the scribe said to Jesus, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That was a huge thing he said. I'll repeat it again. He said, to love God and neighbor is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then the Bible says, when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask Jesus any more questions. So like I said, they kept coming at him over and over and over and over again. But now I think they've kind of run out of challenges. Like this guy wins every time. We give up in a sense is what they were saying. What they should have said is we repent and now we're trusting in him. That would have been the better thing. But that's not the conclusion that at least most of them came to. Well, there are two very important things that were said here. I wondered if you caught them. So first of all, burnt offerings and sacrifices are not very important. Now, it's not that they're wrong. Back at that time, it's not that they were wrong, but we have to put them in the proper perspective. Jesus wants us to understand they're okay, but they're not that important. Let me try to bring it up into modern terms here. We could say that going through the right motions can be a good thing in certain respects, but they're not that important. In other words, if we're going through the right motions, but that is all we are doing, is going through the right motions of, let's say, reading the Bible, attending church, giving money, and we somehow think that because I'm reading, I'm attending, I'm giving, oh, that's the essence of being a Christian. See, some people come to that conclusion. Like we have people that are very good at like going through those motions. Like every day they might read the Bible and they check it off, did that. Every week they're coming to church, up, oh, did that, check it off. So they're just kind of checking off these things. They're very systematic in how they're working through it. And they think, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian. But Jesus is saying to us, those things are good, but they're not as important as the next thing he said. So what is the next part here? Loving God and loving neighbor are most important. Now, we could say, for example, that when we are reading the Bible, when we are attending at church, when we are giving money, all of those things should be greatly connected 
to our love for God and our love for our neighbor. But if we're doing those things and there's a disconnect between those things and loving God and neighbor, there is something seriously wrong. In other words, we've taken the minor thing and we've made it the main thing. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So the main thing is loving God and neighbor. But sometimes though, people are busy with all these kind of godly things and they think that's it. But they're missing out though on loving God and loving neighbor. And then finally here coming to day 11 in the booklet. So the question here is, whose son is the Christ? In this section, Jesus taught an awesome aspect of who he is. I think you know this already, but it's easy to miss it too, though. So let's take a look here. Picking up in verse 35, Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, in other words, speaking you know, by the by the movement of the Holy Spirit, David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And then Jesus continued, David calls the Christ Lord. And then he asked the question, so in what sense is the Christ his son? Sounds very complicated and confusing, doesn't it? Well, to finish the text there, and the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Did the crowd get what he was saying? Do you get what he's saying? Well, in a way, we could say that the point that Jesus made is both complex and simple. I hope you understand, but let's try to talk through it a little bit more. So think about it like this. David said, the Lord said to my Lord. So who are we talking about? The Lord is God the Father. My Lord is God the Son. So the Father spoke to the Son is really what he's saying there. Well, let's put it this way. God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the Father spoke to the Son. So the question going back to it in what sense is the Christ the son of David? Well, I think the best way to do this is to go to what Dr. Luther wrote there as part of the explanation to the second article. He wrote, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. So when we think about Jesus, we should always be thinking son of God and son of man. So as the son of God, David is referring to him as my Lord, but as the son of man, in a sense, David can refer to him as his son. So son of God, he's 
the Son of God the Father, so he is David's Lord, as Son of Man. He has put on the flesh of Mary, and now he is a descendant of David. He is a son of David. Make sense? Okay. Um, so what can we conclude by saying? Jesus is both David's Lord and David's son. It's not really that confusing, but think it through. If you don't quite get it, pick up a copy of the sermon. I try to explain it here, and if you look at it, think about it, I believe that God will help you to understand it better. Well, we have a long way to go in the booklet, but for now, though, we are ready to conclude this sermon, so let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, to know our loved ones who have died in Jesus are now alive with you, that is so super wonderful. That gives us such joy. That gives us such peace. Thank you for that great blessing. Thank you that we can also know that when our bodies die, that you will take the most important part of us, you will keep us alive, and then we will be there living with you. Fill us with joy and help us that we would rightly love you in every proper way and we would also rightly love our neighbor. So help us that we would pay attention to our neighbors. Help us when we see that they might have a spiritual need, a physical need, whatever it might be, and then help us to take action that we can come to their rescue, help them with their needs, and in doing so, we are reflecting your love to them. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.